This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You know, a lot of people are going to be busy over the next little while. I think booking trips to go somewhere. The airline industry is very happy about that. I mean, they were thrilled with the dropping of the test requirement yesterday announced by the Canadian government. But you know what we're all going to get? Sticker shock. Because with the way fuel prices are going, and that includes jet fuel, it uh, looks like a fuel surcharge or increase in airline tickets is something that we are going to have to deal with. But what if there was a way to create new, efficient, inexpensive catalyst for converting CO2 into jet fuel, something that would bring down that price and still be more sustainable to produce that fuel for the airline industry. Well, we thought we have to learn more about this, right? So joining us now is Dr. Joshua Hine, who's a chemical engineer at the University of Dayton. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to be joining you. Tell us about this. So like jet fuel right now is something that I feel like is going up, up, up in price, just like everything else, right? Yeah, so it, it's tied to the, the you know the price of a barrel of oil um, somewhat. So uh, so yeah, it's going to likely go up here in the next uh, several months. Right, and we're going to have to pay more. So what is the idea that you are working on? So at the at the University of Dayton, we work with a number of sustainable aviation fuel technologies that uh, come from industry, national labs across the U.S., North America. In Europe, as well as various academic institutions, and really, what we're trying to do is is you know make uh, renewable, uh, low impact uh, uh, fuels on the environment and human health uh, more widely available. That sounds almost too good to be true. Well, you know, it, the, the prices right now for these alternative fuels are not at parity um, with fuel prices as of uh, a bit ago. Um, but, you know, we're, we're working to uh, to try to make them more economical. And how do you do that, then? Can you tell me a bit about the process? So sustainable aviation fuels can come from a number of different uh, resources. They can be waste resources. So everything, you know, you flush down the toilet or throw away in a in your, your garbage bin that can't be recycled. They can come from purpose-grown crops. You know, there's uh, pathways for corn or other oil-based crops there. And then there's other technologies that are known as power-to-liquid technologies. And so that's another category of, of sustainable aviation fuels. And that's where um, either, you know, renewable uh, uh, bio-source uh, CO2, you know, so grow a crop and then use that crop to produce energy and then use that CO2 to then make jet fuel from it. Um, that That's one way to, to use... Uh, to get a power to liquids working. And then there's also direct air capture technologies that are also, um, you know, uh, being investigated. And so there's lots of different ways to get sustainable aviation fuel. Some of them are cheaper than others. Um, but, you know, we're looking for drop-in alternatives so that we can maintain the same level of safety and um, uh, performance that we right. expect from our, our airline industry. Is this something that the airline industry is clamoring to use? Are they lining up saying, listen, we need we need to do better? Yeah, there's been a, a pretty widespread industrial uh, you know, airline support for sustainable aviation fuel adaptation. And, and you know, the reason being is the drop in nature, right? So these, these fuels are, are, quote, fungible, right? They're, the aircraft and the infrastructure system does not see any difference with these alternative fuels, it just it just works 
Right. Okay. But how far away do you think, Dr. Hunt, that this is from actually becoming reality that an, that an airline would say, this is what we're going to use? So there's some airports, uh, specifically LAX in the U.S., uses a, a, a HEPA, a waste cooking oil um, feedstock. And so if you fly at LAX, there's, there's a little bit of renewable molecules on your aircraft. There's a number of additional facilities being set up around the world right now as we speak. And, you know, it, it, it may not happen, but if you, if you follow the industrial um, capacity projections into the future, you know, around 7% of uh, aviation fuel globally using 2019 levels um, could, be, could be SAF. So 7% by 2030, potentially, um, which would be, I think, a, a major accomplishment. Uh, here in the U.S., there's been some uh, grand, count, grand challenges uh, for, for sustainable aviation fuel, as well as in, in Canada, actually. There was a SAF grand challenge some years ago, and there's still some, some work being done there. Right. I guess we underestimate that sometimes. We always think about cars and driving and our commute and all of that. But this, I mean, the airline industry uses an enormous amount of fuel, too. Yeah, it, it's about 2.5% of the, the radiative emissions um, from from human activity, two and a half percent stems from from aviation. So it's it's still you know it's not as large as as uh, terrestrial transportation, right? Um, but it's still substantial. And CO two is actually a small part of that uh, radio forcing. Contrails um, could be more important than CO two emissions. Just to to note for your listeners, so contrails those are the clouds that come out of the are formed as a result of uh, aviation. Um, emissions, and uh, and they could be more important. There's some studies that suggest that. I also think, too, Dr. Hunt, you know, a lot of industries kind of are getting on board this idea of being more sustainable, showing that they're more friendly to the environment, and the airline industry has not, like, they need something to show, I think, the public, right, that they are more friendly to the environment. Yeah, I, I think um, with aviation emissions, you know, when you hop on a plane and that's your, your you know, transportation producing those those direct emissions it's very clear um from a consumer perspective that um you know you you purchased that ticket and those are your emissions so it's a lot more personal than right let's say going to a grocery store and having really diffuse you know long supply chains producing a lot of co2 emissions to to make the products that you buy in a in a grocery store for example right so interesting listen thanks for telling us about your work thank you so much for having me this is Mornings with Simi. It is not a great stat for BC to be associated with. Actually, it's a terrible stat. We have earned the title of being one of the most hateful provinces in Canada, thanks to these stats that just came out that show there were more police-reported hate crimes per capita in BC than anywhere else. What is going on here? Is it just more people are reporting them now? Are we hearing more about them? And how are we pushing back on this? Well, joining us now is Stephen Noah, who's a lawyer and who's talked about these issues many times and with us. Stephen, thanks for being back with us. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be back on the show and to be chatting about these issues with you. But it's not a very positive thing, Stephen. Like these, these numbers are depressing. It is absolutely depressing. I'm not surprised. And it really reaffirms the sentiment felt by myself and my community during this past little while in the pandemic. Myself as well, having faced a hate crime my own last year, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, just, it's just painful and just saddening to see these kind of statistics. And it just affirms what we've been talking about in the media over and over again in the past year. And 
we, we've talked about your case as well. You, when you came forward though and talked publicly about this, Stephen, what kind of reaction did you get from people? So what I got the reaction from my community is that yes, this happened to me as well, and so it's 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 fascinating because and also interesting because what happened for me is that I had such a hard time even reporting my hate crime in the first place. I was waiting on the phone line for more than 30 minutes. I had to find a way to report it online. It was only available in Chinese. There's no forms in English. And so at that time, it was just so much going on with the Atlanta shootings and the entire community was just shocked. And at first there was a sense of denial, like, no, this cannot be the case. But the fact that I came out was so publicly, it just reaffirmed many others who went through the same thing, but just didn't bother speaking out or couldn't even speak out in the first place. Right. So now when we have this new data from Statistics Canada that shows that the number of hate crimes reported to police right across the country went up 37% in the first year of the pandemic. I mean, do you think it is because, though, that more people are saying, I'm going to speak up about what happened to me? I think there's many factors, but definitely there's been a rise in hate. If anything, it's people are trying to report it, but they can't. I think if you look at the hate crime system, it's is, is broken. We need to make it easy to report a hate crime. So, for example, Victoria reported in July last year to call in. It'll take more than 50 hours for someone to pick up the phone to report a hate crime. So I think people are trying to report, but they cannot. So although there's people trying more and more, I think the fact is there's just a lot of hatred going on. People are trying to find a scapegoat. And that, unfortunately, falls on Asian Canadians during this past period. Does talking about it help? Does that discourage, like, you would like to think that people would be like, oh, I can't behave like this. I think talking about it absolutely helps. So we need to see actual action being taken. You know, I think the reality now is that it's just become internalized racism. People are seeing these stats. They're like, you know what? Like, nothing's really happening. So, for example, like last month, I was walking, I was going to the bathroom at McDonald's in Chinatown, and I saw something on the wall saying, go home, China. Even like a couple of weeks ago, I was walking by my house, and there was a sticker on this lamppost that said China virus. So it's, it's still happening now. And it's, it's just so heart-wrenching to see that there's lack of any action being done. So, for example, at least the Vancouver police now have forms to report it online. But if you look at other cities, you're kind of stuck waiting on a phone line. And there's just so much agony. People are just, they're just shrugging their shoulders now, to be honest. Okay, so when you say nothing is being done, what should be done? Like, what should we be doing? I think the first thing that needs to be done is to make it easy to report hate crimes to the police. Uh, we need to make it easy to go online to report, say, hey, this is what happened to me, and schedule a time to chat with the police the day afterwards. Right now, language is a barrier to reporting hate crimes. And so we got to make it easy for our citizens. Gosh, more than one in four British Columbians come from a racialized background. They're visible minorities. And right now, they just don't feel like they belong. So we need to start with that. Right. Didn't you, you worked on this though, right? About the making the ease of reporting, having a form that they could submit to police. I did. I so I worked on it. I was able to get that done in the city of Vancouver. But what if you cross the boundary road to Burnaby? What if you go down to Richmond? Um, just two days ago, the RCMP reported that North Vancouver and Coquitlam have the ability to report hate crimes online. But what about other cities? Like city of Richmond, it's more than 70% Asian. Right now, you still have to call a phone line. So I think we're making steps in the right direction. But, you know, it's been almost a year since the Atlanta shootings. There needs to be more done and faster. Do you see any signs of progress? Slowly, I think there's, I think the fact that this is being in the news and being captured by Stats Canada is very, it's, it's 
frankly, it's it's great to see because I think in years past, and just thinking back on my, my parents' generation, where they came to Canada 20, 30 years ago, actually 30, 40 years ago, um, it's, it was a different situation. So I think there's progress being done as more aware. But right now, you know, I've attended more than 30 presentations. I've spoken at all these events. Right now, there's just a lot of talk, a lot of reports, but we need to see concrete action. We need resources. We need to modernize the reporting system. We need to make it easy and user-centric. Right now, there's so many hurdles. Like, if something were to happen to you uh, later today in Burnaby, you're stuck calling a phone line. Like, we're not in the 1990s anymore. We're in 2022. We need to make it easy to report and get help that we need. And Stephen, what about everybody else like who's out there? If you see, obviously people see this, right? They There are witnesses to watching these incidents and events happen. What can other people do? Absolutely. When you see this incident happen, you need to first talk to the victim, help acknowledge that what happened, but also report it to the police where you can, right? So I think it's important to acknowledge to show that this does matter because you know, for me, I, uh, some people heard the story online, but uh, last year I was driving and someone threw garbage at me and called me a racial remark. And so, you know, after that happened, after I came out with my story, I had a flood of messages and even support from my friends and colleagues that saying, hey, Stephen, like, that's not right. And that just felt so comforting, knowing that I'm not the only one out there. And so you see this happening, acknowledge it, talk to the victim, but also find a way to help them report it to the police where you can. All right, Stephen, thank you so much for that this morning. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the call and chat. This is Mornings with Simi. Right across the country, virtually all provincial mask mandates are just about gone now. I think the last of them will probably be gone Monday. And there are plans to eliminate well, pretty much all remaining restrictions by the end of April. Our vaccination card program is also supposed to be gone uh, by April the 8th. And then you had the testing at the borders. It was eliminated as of April the 1st. So there's a lot of changes going on that gives us the sense that well, things are getting back to normal, but are they? Increasingly, I'm reading and seeing stories about the BA2 sub-variant of the Omicron variant of COVID-19. Should we be worried about this? Well, joining us now is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, thank you for being back with us. Pleasure to be back with you, Simi. What are you seeing out there with this sub-variant? Well, it accounts for about half the cases now, and the expectation, given that it is more transmissible, is that it will take over the endemic now, just as Omicron took over from Delta. So we will be living in a world of BA2. What does that mean for us, though? Well, COVID is still around. As you mentioned, all of the restrictions are now being lifted, but we still need to be vaccinated. We still need to wash our hands. We still need to stay home if we're sick, and we still need to use masks strategically. If we do that, we will live in the new normal of COVID in the world of BA2. Okay, but what does that new normal look like? Just going about our daily business and also dealing with this? Absolutely. There will be outbreaks. There will be cases. But we now think that the healthcare system in general and individuals in particular, will be able to deal with them as long as we remember that this is not the end of COVID. I was at the Canucks game, not last night, but the one before, and I heard every five minutes, thank God that COVID is over. It is not over. 
we're transitioning. As long as we realize that, we will be able to do most of the things that we used to do and be aware that there will be cases and we'll have to deal with them. Dr. Conway, that must be frustrating for you, though, to be in a situation like that where in your head you are sitting there thinking, no, it's not over yet, but it's clear a lot of people think it is. Absolutely. And my biggest concern is that we will stop being vaccinated. That is our first line of defense. About half of British Columbians eligible to do so have not received their third shot. They need to do that. We need to stay home if we're sick. And if we see someone in our workplace who's sick, who came to work, we need to encourage them to go home. We need to follow some simple rules that acknowledge that COVID is among us, but we want to continue to evolve towards a new normal. So I think both of those things can coexist if we're mindful of them. But uh, you see an awful lot of people, as you said, not wearing their masks and deciding that it is over. Is it possible to convince people to be a bit more balanced on that front? Well, I hope it is, because otherwise we will wind up with more outbreaks than we can deal, and that is a situation where we may need to backtrack. We're just asking people to be reasonable. So if you walk into a small shop, a small restaurant, there's two, two employees, three customers, everyone's wearing a mask. You know, have the mask in your back pocket and pull it out. Put on your mask. I think that's kind of behavior that we're asking of people, and hopefully they'll understand how necessary this is to preserve the new normal. When you see what was happening last night, though, with St. Patrick's Day, Dr. Conway, were you a little bit concerned? <laughs> a little bit concerned. I'm glad a lot of stuff is happening, was happening outdoors. Uh, I'm glad that for now, at least, there's still the vaccination card. So a lot of the indoor stuff was between vaccinated individuals. But yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing that, that will transmit COVID. That and, and gatherings in private residences that are a bit too large with with too many people for too long indoors with all the doors closed. I I think, you know, we're we're going to have to trust people, but we still have to get the message out there without sounding like we're being negative that congratulations on all the work you did. You did. You stayed away from each other. You follow the rules. You got vaccinated. You got us here. Here's the few really easy things you still need to do to keep us here. So let's do it together. It feels like the one stat that people still pay attention to is the hospitalization rate. Is that the one that we now use to determine how serious it is? It's the only one that's reliable because we can't count cases anymore. We're not testing in a way that allows us to do that. We're not really tabulating it. So that's a number that uh, if it goes up, it means that we didn't do things as well as we could six weeks ago because it's the lagging indicator, as we've discussed before. It's a thing that happens in six weeks if we, we have too many transmissions now. But such as it is, let's keep, uh, let's keep following it. And if ever there are outbreaks that are reported, let's pay attention to them. Let, let's, let's see why right. that happened and why it happened there and we don't want it to happen here. Are there spots around the world, Dr. Conway, that you're paying attention to right now where you think, okay, that could potentially happen here? Well, I think if we people are talking about China, but the problem with China is that the Sinovac, the vaccine they used, doesn't work at all against Omicron. So that's that's a bit of an outlier. But in the United Kingdom, this is a really good example, is three weeks ago, they said that even if you're sick, even if you have COVID, you can still come to work. And guess what? Two to three weeks later, the cases go up very significantly. So I think those are the lessons to learn 
for us to say, look, that's what happens if you go to work when you're sick. So if you're sick, stay home. Okay. Are people heeding that, though, do you think? I hope so. I think we will see. I think right now, th- these are heady times. People are emerging from, from their, their long COVID winter, their two-year winter, and they're very happy about it, and they should be. So I'm willing to give people a little bit of, of, of leeway in the short term, but we need to craft a message that is realistic yet as positive as we can, as we can manage, and that's going to be a challenge, I think. Do we know how effective the vaccines that we have taken are against the subvariant? Uh, you need the three shots. You really, really need the three shots. And this is a message that we need to get out there as half of British Columbians haven't gotten their third shot. We need to persist with these uh, with these vaccination programs. And that needs to be part of the message. Yeah, that really feels like that has fallen off, like even the message. Oh, heavens, yes. I think... We, Bonnie Henry did such a, a great job of being, being a leader, and that's being recognized. And she's completely out of the limelight right now. And we need to, we need to get back out there and get the message, uh, get the message out that, that uh, please get your third shot in addition to these other little public health uh, things that are so easy to do that we need to continue to do, including, I haven't mentioned washing hands yet, but that's right. that, but we, we, these are easy things. We need to do them. Let's hope people do them. Dr. Conway, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre, talking about the sub-variant of Omicron. It's called BA2 and the impact that is having. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about how last night went. St. Patrick's Day celebrations. It was busy out there. Well, joining us now is Yvonne Charette, who's the owner of My Pub Group. They've got about five pubs in their portfolio. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, yeah. No, thank you for having me. Well, how was last night? Well, I, I've got to say it, it, it felt like a different industry yesterday. Just it. There were so many people in our locations. Uh, there were so many people just uh, smiling and giving me the fist pump and just saying hello for myself. Um, for, uh, it, was, uh, it wasn't it uh, was too much of a celebration in terms of beverages because I wanted to go around and just right. see the different, uh, the different locations and stuff like that and see what was going on. But the, it was the same at all locations. Every, the, the, the patrons and the public were just, uh, there was a different energy. Right. Was it jam-packed? Jam-packed, yes. Okay, yeah. so it sounds like people really missed this. Oh, I would have, uh, I, I, yeah, for sure they, they, they missed the, um, the getting together and getting, I think it was an opportunity to get back to being social again and just to um, uh, enjoy some time out, time out with friends and yeah. Yeah, it was good. In the last couple of years, around, did you have moments where you thought, I don't know if these are all these pubs are going to come back. I don't know if I'll be able to continue on. I think for um, my group um, and uh, my partnership, I've been with my partnership for about 16, 17 years. I think we we had to pivot and we had to, um, you know, watch the bank accounts and uh, we're quite fortunate in a sense that we have retail attached to our pubs but there was uh, there was some fleeting moments where we were wondering how we were going to come out of this but i think uh, i think even now we're still facing some 
some moments like that because of inflation and different challenges. But, but I, I think it was more so how are we going to get out of uh, getting, getting these businesses to, to running normal again, or at least to having restrictions lifted because they seem to, um, they just seem to uh, carry on for quite some time when there was different ways or, or um, uh, different um, ways we could have, right. we could have kept the, the, you know, dancing going with masks and just different things like that, where we could have prob- probably engaged with the, with, with the PHO's office a lot better. Right. Um, yeah. So but, it was just, it was frustrating. But it sounds like it went well last night. So that's good. Listen, Yvonne, thank you so much for your time. Oh, I appreciate uh, being on, and I will hopefully hear from you soon. <laughs> oh, sure. Hopefully, if everything goes well, maybe you won't have to. But that's Yvonne Charette, who's the owner of My Pub Group. They have about five pubs that they look after, and they said all of them were jam-packed last night. And I'm sure the hospitality industry would love to stop, you know, talking about the problems and just get back to serving people. And it sounds like that's exactly what they were doing last night. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, if you have an NCAA bracket, it might have been wrecked by what was going on last night with the March Madness NCAA tournament. Oh boy, lots of upsets that happened, and I'm sure some money was lost too. Speaking of that, did you know that the American Gaming Association estimates that more than 17% of adults in the U.S. planned to bet on the tournament? That's 45 million people, worth about $3.1 billion U.S., And we've seen a big move towards legalized sports betting in the United States over the last few years. And we're seeing the same thing here in Canada. And it's actually trickling over to all sorts of sports, not just on things like March Madness or the Super Bowl or things like that. It's actually spreading everywhere. Joining us now to talk more about that is Tim DeBile, who's the president of media for the American Ultimate Disc League. Tim, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Is this impacting your league too? Absolutely. Yeah, we last season, we had a great partnership with DraftKings. Um, they reached out to us and asked if we wanted to be part of their part of their app. And uh, we managed to get on the app and uh, had legal sports betting in eight states last year. And I think we're up to 10 this year. And so what kind of a difference does it make then when you are on an app like that? Like, is that exposure for the league? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's 100% exposure for us. DraftKings uh, also played some of our games live last year. They did free-to-play pools every week around the league. So basically, it's just bringing you know our sport into a to this realm of people who want to bet on sports, which is you know like you said earlier, is a lot of people right now. It sure seems like that. Have you noticed a growth in that? That now that I think people always were kind of betting on the side, but now that it seems legal and acceptable, are more people doing it? I think so. I mean, th- that last year was our first year, but I mean, we've had requests and questions about it for many years. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of folks want to do more of the fantasy side of things, you know, follow players. And I think that's where we want to head. Uh, last year with DraftKings, it was strictly just betting on win win loss for the teams. And so do people go looking for it then? I wonder, Tim, like, how does a league like yours, American Ultimate Disc League, attract attention when you are up against some of these bigger leagues? Well, I mean, I think for us, it was lucky that DraftKings got involved because they're looking for sports in that April to August time frame where really you kind of have um, Major League Baseball, but not much else going on, a little bit of NBA towards the beginning. 
so they're always looking for ways to keep their platform active and keep keep betters happy. And so we kind of fill that void. And for us, it was kind of allowing them to market our, our league. And so, yeah, for us, I think in the long run, it's going to help us if other platforms like FanDuel and others get involved. Um, you know, it's just a, it's a whole new market. A lot of those folks who follow traditional sports aren't really, don't even know the ADL existed before last year. So we definitely saw an uptick in our social and uptick in our, um, our website and everything else last year. And so I think, you know, long run, I think it's going to help us for sure. Right. So how do you keep those people though, right? Because I'm sure there's always that initial bit of interest because this is new and this is different. How do you make sure that you translate that into people who stick with it? Yeah, I mean, for us, it's trying to get them to watch full games. So last year, Friday night's DraftKings put one of our games on their YouTube channel and promoted it all week. Um, so I think it's for us, we think we have a great product. We think the sport is super fun to watch. So just getting more people watching it and obviously having them bet on the game or, or bet on certain players is going to get them interested in it. I, I think everybody's seen that in fantasy football for the NFL. It's been a, just a huge boon to the NFL. Obviously, we're nowhere on that level, but even just getting you know people to, to tune into that Friday night game on DraftKings because they put a $10 bet on the game, I think is good for us because as long as they're consuming our content, they're going to get interested in it and we just feel like it's a great product, and as long as people are watching it, it's going to help us. Does it change how you market things, too, Tim? Because now you're kind of gearing this towards people who are checking you out through a betting app. Yeah, we a little bit. We did. We definitely did more um, content around you know the spreads and who is the favorite to win the game and why somebody might upset somebody else. Um, we worked with DraftKings on that and had people on their podcasts and, and everything else. So I, I do think that it's sort of turning it a little bit more into, you know, why a certain team might win or, or lose or some historical data around that. So we, we've always been a pretty data heavy league. So we were able to kind of lean into some of that data we've collected and, you know, use it for great content and get people interested in, in making, again, generally on DraftKings, these are pretty small bets. I think they limited it to a hundred dollars per, per game per user. So right. you, know, you can't go out and drop $10,000 on one of these games. Right, but people do stuff like that too. So, do you foresee that <laughs> well, changing? They do. Yeah. Right. Do you foresee um, that changing as it becomes more popular? Yeah, I mean, I think like obviously these things take time for the the entities like DraftKings to feel comfortable taking a bet like that. Um, so, I think it's a long term thing where you know once they have enough data and they really understand the sport, where they can actually make lines where you know, somebody can't come in and and know something that that the bookies don't know and, and drop a million dollar bet on it. Um, you know, they don't want to see that happen. So right, you know, for us right now, it's just, uh, and for them, it's just around engagement and trying to bring in new users and, and keep their users um, happy when, when there isn't as much content. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Tim, thanks for being with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me.